What's really fascinating is as you look at the person of Jesus, and we're going to go through the person of Jesus this morning and the time that we have available, so you'll appreciate it. it's a snapshot. But as you look at the person of Jesus and look at what he genuinely taught, both in the Bible and outside of the context of the Bible, the things that people referenced, then you look at the life of Jesus and what he was about, and you determine what he was about. Then you look at all the world religions, and that, that involves some of the cults as well. You look at what they all talk about, and the only one that matches what Jesus talked about was Christianity. Why? Because it was built around him. He's the founder of it. The founder of Christianity isn't some human person, it's Jesus himself. I'm going to make a reference to a, a particular part on the Bible in a few seconds, which will kind of show you how that took place. But let's look at the, the life and Jesus and these kind of the, the different kind of facets. First of all, look at his birth. Who remembers the millennium bug? Put your hand up if you remember the millennium bug. Okay, I'm not going to lie to you. I was slightly disappointed nothing happened. When you, do you remember it? It's like I was expecting carnage. Do you, do you remember the conversation about like, I th I th my IT knowledge is limited at best. Okay, so I'm, I, may, I may step into territory that some of you may shake your head about now. So I'm going to keep it as general as possible. But my understanding about the Millennium Bug is that there was something in the computer clocks and we didn't know what was going to happen when we hit the year 2000. Is that the general gist? I'm looking at the IT-related people here. They're nodding. I think we're all right. I'm not going to progress anymore because I might now get shakes from you, not nods, okay? But the idea is uh, we just didn't know what was going to happen. And there was fear that aeroplanes might fall out of the sky or, or hospital equipment might suddenly die or uh, the whole... Uh, was the internet around then? Well, it would have been in a basic form. And it, that, there was just... We were just... We were, there was a genuine fear. A genuine fear. And, um, but it, actually nothing happened. And I'm, I'm sure many of the computer um, people who make these machines were rubbing their hands in anticipation that people might have to buy new computers and were maybe slightly disappointed. I don't know. But what was interesting about the millennium was as I, as I was reading about the millennium, it, it, the, the kind of the celebration of the millennium, the headlines were that this was going to be the New Year's Eve of all New Year's Eves. This was going to be the party of all parties. There was this anticipation, this excitement, because this is like 2,000 years. We're going to celebrate this. I also remember reading newspapers the days afterwards that talk about it being the biggest damp squib ever and that there was more disappointment. But this great excitement, this great almost ecstasy in some circles, this great enthusiasm and celebration, because this was not the normal turning of a year. This was not like moving from 1982 to 1983. This wasn't even moving from 1999 to the year 2000 in terms of a decade. This was moving from one millennium to another. We were closing off this millennium and we were stepping into a new millennium. We were celebrating. What were we celebrating? I hope you thanked Jesus for that party. Because the thing we were celebrating is a marker that this is 2,000 years since Christ turned upon our planet. In fact, when he turned upon to our planet, it made such an impact, it put a slice right through time. 
It made such an impact that we decided everything that happened before this slice through time, we were going to call BC, before Christ. Everything that happened since this slice in time, we were going to call AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Now listen, when I was born, it didn't make an impact on many people's lives. I mean, it made an impact on my parents' lives. And I remember them talking about, e, do you remember life before Mark? But I don't think it's a good thing. <laughs> I don't think it was a good thing. But might I suggest to you, the real celebration, the real power, the real significance about Jesus Christ turning upon planet Earth was not about him dividing anything. It's about him uniting something. The real significance, the real excitement, the real celebration isn't the dawning of a new millennium for the new millennium's sake. The real excitement is that God himself turned upon our planet in the person of Jesus. And when that act took place and when that life was, was, was born in terms of arriving on planet Earth, that began a significant moment when it was going to be possible for God in heaven and people on the earth to be united. That, my friends, was the significance of the arrival of Jesus. Not simply a slice through time. Not simply a division. And it's interesting because you read all the different historians, all of them acknowledge that this person called Jesus actually was born. The great Jewish historian Josephus, the Mishnah, which are the Jewish teachings, the Roman historian Tacitus, pardon me, Pliny, another Roman writer, and Suetonius all agree on the main facts of the existence of Jesus. In fact, it's absolutely true to say that no serious and genuine historian would ever doubt that Jesus was a genuine historical figure. Most of the other faiths, faiths and cults in the world have to deal with the reality of this pretty spectacular person. They can't handle him being God, so they have to relegate him to something less than that. But they can't just call him a man because they know he was too significant. And they knew that that wouldn't stand up historically. So they have to acknowledge that he was somebody a little bit different. We'll unpack that in a few moments' time. It's absolutely fascinating when you look at the life of Jesus. Of course, one of the problems concerning his birth that some people have is this notion of a virgin birth. I mean, how on earth does that work? And that, that would be one of the main objections I would seek to help people understand when it comes to the birth of Christ. Well, I want to say to you, it's simple. Two things I want to say. First of all, you need to understand that the, the, the birth of Jesus on planet Earth was not the beginning of his existence. He, he already existed. The birth of Jesus on Earth was the way he came from heaven into Earth. He was already around. He was already alive. He came into this earth as a human being. And so to identify with you and I, he had to arrive in the same way that you and I arrive. However, because there was also the God dynamic, he couldn't do it exactly in the same way that you and I had to. Because he couldn't be born of a natural means completely because otherwise he would be subject to the wrong and the, what we call the sin, the wrong things that affect our lives. So here lies a tension. So what's going to happen? Well, it's all right because God's got a plan. God decided he would turn up on planet Earth in a way that was totally consistent with his character, but totally communicating to you and me. And that was he did it in a really supernatural way. 
Now, people say to me, but Mark, I struggle with that. It's like, how can you have life essentially coming out of nothing? How can you have life coming around without male and female making it happen? I mean, that's, that's impossible. And I say this to my evolutionary friends who I say, so do, are you telling me you struggle? And I say to my Big Bang friends, I said, are you telling me that you struggle with the idea of life just happening? And yet that's a, that, that shouldn't be a struggle because that's exactly what you believe. In, in fact, if you believe in Big Bang and evolution, you actually believe in a bigger miracle than the virgin birth. You do know that, don't you? Because the virgin birth, I mean, it was a lot easier. There's, there's, a, there's, there's already a human being involved. God just has to drop his, um, his life into Mary's womb. So he's working with it. So actually, I mean, what you need to understand, miracles are miracles to God. I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, playing around a little bit. But the truth is, if you have no problem believing in the Big Bang and evolution, you really, you have to have less faith and stretch your imagination less to believe in the virgin birth. So please don't let that be an objection to believing in the birth of Christ because actually you're comfortable with other supernatural activities. So don't let that hinder you. The birth of Jesus was incredible. Do you know, when Jesus rocked up on planet Earth, during his life, including his birth, he fulfilled, are you ready for this, over 300 what we call prophecies, but for you they're predictions. They're slightly more than that, but just to help you understand, for those of you not familiar with the faith, over 300 predictions were made about the person of Jesus. And many of them were fulfilled in his birth. The rest of them were fulfilled in his life. But all of them were fulfilled in his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. I mean, it's absolutely staggering. So his birth was something incredible. Proof of his existence genuinely shouldn't be the problem for you because it isn't the problem. But I accept that proof of his identity may be a problem to you. Okay, so I want you to imagine that you met me when I was born. Okay, just imagine that for a few moments time. So you met me when I was born and then you didn't see me until my funeral, until I died. And then you were chatting to people in the wake, one should mop your tears away because obviously there'd be a lot of devastation, I appreciate that. A little bit disappointed that nobody's agreeing with me on that particular aspect, but let's just suspend that for now. So you met me when I was born, and you met me when I, was, when I died, and then you were talking about people, uh, to people rather, who'd met me during my lifetime. Would you agree that they'd have a better idea of who I was than you would have? Would, would that be a fair statement to make. Would, would it also not be true that actually for you to make any judgment about me, having only met me when I was born and at my, my, my death, my funeral, expecting you to make any judgment about me, would you agree that that would be unfair if, if people were to say to you, oh, could you come and do a eulogy? Well, you wouldn't have anything to say. Would, would that be true? You wouldn't know anything about me because you've met me in my birth and you've met me in my death and that's it. But you know, people make a judgment about Jesus and all they know about him is maybe a bit about his birth 
and a bit about his death. And maybe some way, sometimes, those of us who are Christians, we, you know, we might only, only always talk about his birth and his death. So I apologise to you if that's all you've ever heard somebody who's a Christian talk about. It's just that his death's really important and we'll unpack that. So I apologise if we've not introduced you to the life of Jesus. But let me encourage you to have a look at the life of Jesus. It's really important. You can only make a thorough judgment and decision about who he is if you looked at his life. Does that make sense? Otherwise, you're just going on his birth and you're just going on his death. It's interesting. Various people have had their opinions about Jesus, having never really met him. Madonna said, when I was growing up, I was religious in a passionate way. Jesus Christ was like a movie star, my favourite idol of all. John Lennon of the Beatles said we're more popular than Jesus. It's probably not true, to be fair. But actually, the interesting thing is, Jesus really considers it of absolute importance as to who you think he is. You see, you may have heard lots of people claiming different things about Jesus, but who do you say he is? And what platform, what authority, what information, what right arguably have you got to say who he is if you've not looked at his life and Jesus was actually really fascinated for those of you who are familiar with the Bible if you want to just pick up these few sentences please do so it's Mark 8 27 to 33 I'm just going to read it out really because it's a fairly short section Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi on the way he Jesus that is Asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist was somebody who preceded Jesus and spoke about his arrival. Others say Elijah. Elijah is one of the Older Testament characters or one of the other prophets, again, in, in the Old Testament. And then Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Another part of it puts it, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It means the same one. It means the same thing. It's just a little sort of shorthand version. What's really fascinating, if you read this account in different places, Jesus said something really significant. So let's just visit this for a few seconds. So who do people say I am? Well, you're this, you're that, you're the other. And people have all their opinions. Good man, good man a spirit man, all sorts of different definitions of who Jesus, Jesus was because we are confronted with this reality that Jesus was a bit spectacular. He's a bit different to every other person that's been on planet Earth. And as I referenced at the beginning, many of the faiths and cults are faced with this challenge because they don't want to relegate him just to being a normal man because they look at his life and say, actually, it was quite different. But they don't always realise the logical implications of just saying he was a prophet or a good moral teacher. But Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, one of his followers, said, well, I believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said, fantastic. This is a really significant day. This is me paraphrasing. And then Jesus said these words, you are Peter. And on this rock... The rock was referencing the statement that, G, that uh, Peter had just made about you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, you are Peter. Interesting, the word Peter in the Greek means pebble. It's interesting, isn't it? So he's saying you're pebble, but you see this statement you made, it's a rock. It's something quite spectacularly strong. 
And he said, on your discovery, which has come from heaven, on this discovery, I will build my church. And that's where Jesus introduces the concept of the church. That's where Jesus introduces the concept of the Christian faith. On that statement, Christianity was started, essentially. So it began to get, kind of get prominence in, in the book of Acts when we see that it began to spread like wildfire. But in terms of recognising a significant moment in time, that was it. Because Jesus said, you see what you've just said there, that I am God, I'm going to build my church on this. And that's why every other faith and every other religion in the world has established their identity on the antithesis of that statement. On the opposite of that statement. But the church, the Christian church, started um, and he rests on the fact that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then when you look at the Christian framework, it all makes sense. Because it all teaches about that. It all rests on that truth and on that reality. It's really interesting. I, I, I love C.S. Lewis. I don't know if we've got any C.S. Lewis fans out there. Yeah, he's br- absolutely... I mean, the guy is a genius, right? He writes... I mean, he was an academic. He writes some seriously academic pieces and thought-provoking pieces. And then he writes these beautiful gems called the Narnia Chronicles, where children and adults can read them together. I mean, he is a genius, really. And I love him. And he says something. And it's like, when I first read this, I thought to chill out a little bit. Because Lewis doesn't hold back. I'm just going to read to you what he says. And when I thought, this is a pretty, pretty powerful, potent statement, there must be a reason why he says it. I'm going to tell you what he said, and I'm going to explain to you why he said it. So he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. So he says that because many religions who have faced and confronted, as I mentioned, with the reality that Jesus was a bit spectacular, they can't relegate him to just being a man, so they call him a great moral teacher. Lewis is saying, we don't have that luxury. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who claimed to be a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. He adds, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great, pardon me, moral teacher. Are you, would you agree? He's, he's a bit keen, isn't he, Lewis, on that? I mean, he ain't messing back. He, he's, you're not, you don't say, Lewis, what are you really trying to tell us? Do you know what I mean? This guy is coming out with it. And why is he so strong? Well, when you analyse what he talks about, actually, it makes perfect sense. See, Jesus, he claimed to be God. I haven't got time to show you where he claimed to be God. But he did. I've studied it. I've looked into it. It's implicit and explicit. It's, it's a bit strikingly obvious that he claimed. I mean, let me give you one example of how Jesus clearly, those monotheistic Jews that were around at the time, monotheistic meaning they believe in one God, a whole bunch of Jews one day said to Jesus, by the way, we're not stoning you because of the miracles you do. We're stoning you because you and me, a man, claim to be God. I mean, I don't know whether he's supposed to feel a bit better or you're not stoned because of the miracles. That's good. You know, no, no, that's, look, we know that you claim to be God and that's why we're stoning you. So please, there are lots and lots and lots of implicit and explicit, it's littered with it, that Jesus claimed to be God and to be able to forgive people and heal people. It's there. So Jesus made these claims. Okay, so here's the logic. He made these claims 
Either they were true or they weren't true. Now, I'm a little bit logical. If somebody tells me something, it's either true or it isn't true. So Jesus made these claims that I am God. Either it's true or it wasn't true. Let's move the true to one side for a few seconds. Let's, come, let's just visit the wasn't true. Jesus made these claims about being God. They weren't true and he knew it. What does that make him? A liar. Okay, Jesus made these claims. They weren't true, but he didn't know it. What does that make him? Deluded. A lunatic. So when you look at that particular thread of logic, you don't have the luxury of saying he was a good moral teacher. Because he was either completely deluded, completely nutty, or he was the most deceitful person that ever walked this planet. Can you see why Lewis said that? He said it's not a conclusion we have the luxury of having. We just do not have that luxury. So therefore, if you swing to the other's thread, Jesus made these claims and they were true and he knew it. He knew they were true and that's why he made them. Now what you've got to do is you've then got to look at the logic flow there and then you've got to ask yourself the question, was Jesus' life consistent of that of somebody who was a liar or a lunatic? Not at all. In fact, there was never one occasion in the whole of the New Testament or in the whole of the church letters that I've managed to research and, and look into that ever record Jesus saying anything that was a lie or that was just deluded. And in fact, if you look at what happened in the culture of the day, people would turn up to see Jesus even before he got to a town. That was without Facebook Snapchat, Twitter, or Pokemon. <laughs> How culturally relevant am I this morning? Please don't ask me what Pokemon is. It's a new thing and I haven't got a clue. But <laughs> the here endeth my cultural relevance. But it's like Jesus, I mean, it was, people were saying, nobody spoke like this man. Nobody. I mean, this guy, Jesus, confounded the religious leaders of the day. Religious leaders of the day, they weren't just prominent in the temple, they were prominent in the culture. And here's Jesus, at a very, very young age, confounding them. They're blown away by him. No man spoke like this man. On the cross, the centurion had been guarding the cross, the Roman army officer, said, surely this man was the Son of God. Folks, people, by and large, aren't attracted to lunatics. To people that are mad. I don't know if any of you remember, she lived not too far from here. When I was in Rawson Market, we had a character in Bradford called Madame. Do you remember Madame? Mad we, we loved Madame because she came into Rawson Market all the time. And uh, she, was, she was a character. And anybody in Bradford knew that if Madame was around, you'd cross by on the other side of the road because she'd hit you with a walking stick. And that's why we loved it when people from Leeds came to Bradford for the day. <laughs> Because <laughs> they didn't know about Madan, and you could tell because they were kind of limping around, you know, as she'd smack them. But we loved Madan. She was she was affect she was affectionately uh, appreciated in Rawson Market. But we wouldn't go anywhere near her. And in fact, people would often pass by on the other side of the road. But when you look at the life of Jesus, it, it, people people were attracted to him. They, they saw genuine um, authenticity and integrity in everything that he said. Nothing came up short. 
In fact, what he claimed took him to the cross. Took him to the cross. What he claimed meant that he was beaten up for it. These claims that he was God and that he could forgive wrong. Josephus, the great Jewish teacher, a Jewish historian writer, wrote in AD 90. And um, he, he said these, these words. At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. And many from among the Jews and from other nations became his disciples. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them and that three days after his crucifixion, he was alive. Rousseau, a French opponent of Christianity, said if the life and death of Socrates are those of a philosopher, the life and death of Jesus are those of God. See, Jesus didn't just tell the truth. He was the truth. He was truth. And so therefore, everything that comes out from him is truth. And that same Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. His birth was significant. His life was significant. And then his death was significant. I want you to imagine you're walking home today. And uh, are you familiar with a sinkhole? Have you heard of sinkholes? Some of you, they've been a bit more prominent in recent years. Sinkhole is basically where the ground gives way for all kinds of different reasons. And houses can collapse, cars can collapse, and people can just be swallowed up by these sinkholes. Some of them have been quite fantastic, really. Just imagine you're walking home today, a sinkhole appears, you fall into the sinkhole. Sorry to depress you, it's just an illustration, it's not going to happen. Okay, and as a result of falling into that, you, you, you break your legs, your arms, and uh, you can't get out and... You know, the water, water pipes have broken and the, it's filling up with water now. You're desperate. You need some help. You can't get yourself out. You're in a bad situation. Okay? Somebody walks along the top, hears you crying for help and says, are you all right? And you go, no. I need help. Probably don't do that because your arms are broken, but you know what I mean. And they, they say, okay, okay, that's fine. I've got this covered. I've got this covered. What you need to do is do this, do that, Observe this, pull yourself up there, put effort in here, and get yourself out. Great, see you later. Is that the kind of help you want? The answer I'm looking for is no, by the way, in case you're not sure. And then somebody else walks past, hears you shouting, looks down and says, you all right? You go, no, I'm still not all right. And you still can't do that. I don't know why I do that still. Well, what's wrong? You say, well, arms, legs, broken. I reckon I've not got long left. The water's filling up. And the person says, it's fine, I've got a plan, I've got a plan for you. It's not a problem, I've got this one covered. What you need to do is to enter into a state of inner peace. Yeah, you need to become at one with yourself. It's like, it's like connect with what's inside, empty out of you all the worries and fears about the flooding, about the things, and the, pot, just, and the sinkhole, and forget about the pain, just empty all thoughts of that, get it all out there, enter into a state of inner peace, rock and roll, off they go. Is that the sort of help you want? Again, the answer is no. Some of you weren't sure. Okay, so I come along because I am the saviour. I come along. I say, I hear you shouting. Are you all right? You say, no. I said, I know. I'm going to sort it. I have a plan. 
I pick up a piece of conveniently located rope. I wrap it around my race, oh, raced, my waist. I fasten it to a tree. I come down. I, get, I pick you up. I put you on my shoulder. I secure you. I lift you out. I get you to safety. I get you made whole. And I show you how not to fall down potholes again and sinkholes again. Is that the type of help you want? Of course it is. So I've done a bit of research. And I've done a bit of study. And you can gather all the religions of the world, which are man-made. And you can gather all the cults of the world, which are man-made. And to a degree, you can gather, well, no, you can gather all the philosophies of the world as well, which are man-made. And they fall into two categories. One category tells you it's all about you doing everything you can to get out of the situation, but you're not definitely going to get out. And then the other group of philosophies, world religions, etc., etc., they tell you actually what you need to do is just forget about what's happening around you and escape from it because it's not actually that real. But you and I both know it is. The Bible tells me that humanity is in a sinkhole, it's got itself in a bit of a mess, it's in a hole, and the only outcome is death. But there is a plan. And it's not to. Do this and do that in the hope that you might get out. Because lots of religions say if you do all this, still doesn't guarantee you're going to get to heaven or its version of it. And so it's a vain hope and vain activity. He doesn't say just enter into a state of inner peace and forget it all. No, no, what God said, and this is where Jesus' death is significant. Jesus' death was God's rescue plan. That's what God did. He came down into this sinkhole. He came down into this mess. He didn't remain distant. He got close, upfront, personal, God involved, and he picks you up and he gets you out of the mess and he gets you restored, he gets you healed, and he shows you how to avoid getting in the mess again. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, his death was so significant because it was removing the thing that stops you and I having a relationship and a friendship with God. His punishment, his death, was, was taking our punishment onto himself. He took our death. So physically we die, but spiritually you say yes to Jesus, you come alive. And you really, really begin to live. And it gets you out of this method. Of course, we're still stuck in this earth and we're still surrounded by all the kind of the baggage and the mess that's around there. But the punishment, the results of our wrong, were lifted out of those and connected with God. Socrates said this, if a perfect man came to this world, everyone would gang upon him and kill him. He said that 400 years before Jesus came onto planet earth. How true was that? Bible says, he who knew no sin. In other words, he who knew no wrong. In other words, he who was perfect <coughs> took on our wrong. You read the Bible, it's exactly what happened. They ganged upon him and killed him. Jesus' death was so significant. Well, if I left it there, the story doesn't end there. I've just introduced you to his birth, his life, and his death. But you see, there's another exciting bit, his resurrection. Now, I have to be honest, that's another 45-minute presentation. You'll be pleased to know we're not going to do that this morning. But I need to just help you understand in the next four or five minutes how the resurrection 
was significant. And then when I've done this little bit, I'm going to give you an opportunity to embrace this Jesus for yourself this morning. The best way to explain it is this. There was a man named Frank Morrison. Frank Morrison was a leading lawyer in America. He was known for his meticulous approach. To be honest with you, he was a little bit fed up of all these Christians going on about this resurrection thing. And so he thought to himself, I'm going to I'm going to get look at all the evidence. I'm going to pull all this evidence together and I'm going to show in a book once and for all what the evidence points to and finally shut these Christians up from going on about the resurrection. So Frank Morrison did just that. So remember he's coming from the perspective coming from the bias that the resurrection didn't happen. That's important. Because when you're doing think, research and you're trying to prove something, you come from a bias. The bias is you believe that it happened or it didn't happen. So you gather the evidence to support that and then prove your conclusion. So he's gathering the evidence to support what his particular bias, his particular thought is. So he gathered all the evidence and true to his word, he gathered it all and he put it into a book. So he was true to his word. The book was called Who moved the stone get it and read it it's fantastic i mean that's a great a great chapter for a book where you're trying to shut up these christians about the resurrection because you know that stone it was actually 3 tons in weight couldn't be moved by one person so he, he showed all his findings oh, oh the first chapter by the way is called the book that refused to be written And in that chapter Morrison tells about his conversion. Talks about how he became a Christian, a little bit like the gentleman when he was presented with the evidence in the in the um in the interview on the screen. When he actually looked at the evidence properly, he began to realize that the Bible was true and that Jesus was real and what he'd thought about him through his other religion actually was not true. And Morrison arrived at that place through looking into this evidence he discovered that Jesus did rise again from the dead and that's why that first chapter of the book is called the book that refused to be written and he analyzed such common objections like it being a big fraud that the body was just stolen he analyzed objections like that it was just a swoon that Jesus just fainted he looked at uh, the, the, what we call the delusion theory that it was just one mass hallucination and then he looked at the miracle aspect i haven't got time if i start going into one of those i'm going to have to unpack all of them and in itself that would take about 30 minutes just to give you a very very basic introduction but what you need to understand is this lawyer who was trying to disprove the resurrection looked at the evidence gathered the evidence and realized that the resurrection did happen you see i might want to suggest to you this morning that the resurrection is probably the most critical part of the story of Jesus. How do, why do I say that? It says in the Bible if Christ isn't risen from the dead, your faith is in vain. If Christ wasn't risen from the dead, our faith as those of us are Christian, our faith is in vain. But the reason it's not, <laughs> the reason it's alive, the reason it's making an impact is because Christ is risen from the dead. And I could spend hours debating about that reality, but I want to present a truth to you this morning. For those of you now who are not Christians, Jesus said, "Because I live, you also can live. 
Because he came back alive, not only can you be forgiven of your wrong, this is the wonderful thing. You can come alive inside. You can live like you have never lived before. And though you might die physically, you'll very much stay alive spiritually. Oh, listen, his birth was significant. His birth was significant because God didn't want to stay distant. He wanted to get up front, up close and personal. His life was significant because it gives us a window into the type of person that God is. His death is significant because the founder of Christianity died to take the punishment of the wrong, as I've mentioned. That's significant. And the fact that he came alive, that's significant. Is it reasonable to believe that Christianity is right? I think it, personally, I think it's more than reasonable. It's absolutely essential. Absolutely essential, but not because of a religious framework, but because of Jesus. Let's pray. Time's just slipping away, but I'm not going to rush these few moments just now. Jesus, this risen Jesus, is here today. And he invites you to experience him. He invites you to say yes to him. He's literally appealing to you to put your life in his hands. And all it takes is one heartfelt yes. Listen, you don't need to understand absolutely everything. You've still got questions, that's fine. Most Christians I've met still have questions. In fact, all of them. Still challenges. But today you can know Jesus. In all his fullness. In all his life. He's appealing to you. He's saying, come on, put your life in my hands. You may not feel it or know it. But right now Jesus is here. And he's calling you. Right where you are, say yes to him. Just right where you are now. Not out loud, just in the stillness and quietness of your own heart. Say yes to him. Saying yes to God simply means you say, God, I'm not going to live life my way. And when you're saying yes to God, you're saying yes to Jesus. They're the same. You're saying, I'm not going to live life my way. I'm going to live it your way with your help. Saying yes means that you receive his forgiveness and his new life. You step into that. Saying yes also means that you make a decision to turn away completely from doing life your own way. And heading in your direction. And with his help, and he does help, you make that commitment to do it his way. So where you are right now, just as the bit of gentle music in the background is playing if you've never said yes to God just say yes to him right now in the stillness and quietness of your own heart yes God yes God God for those who are saying yes to you right now just become real yes God yes God If you're here today, you, you might be saying, Mark, I'm not quite at that place yet where I can fully say yes to God. 
Well, you can make a commitment to, to look more into it in a, in a really intentional way. It's what I call a little yes. Or you can remake, make a commitment to remain open-minded and that's really, really valuable and good. It's what I call a healthy maybe. A healthy maybe makes, means you're saying maybe there's something in this, I, I just need to really stay open to it. I would encourage you to make that decision in your heart and mind, whether it's to God or to yourself, either a little yes or a healthy maybe. So God, for anybody who said those words to you this morning, just become so real to them now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we sing our last song, I've got some packs that I've written for people who've said either a yes to God or a little yes or a healthy maybe. I'd, I'd love to get one of those to you this morning just where uh, I am, where the CDs and DVDs are. Please come and, and get one from me. And if it's okay with you, I'll fill in a little card inside that just says I said yes to God or I would like to find out more. You can just tick whatever best represents your decision this morning and just place for your details which I can pass on to the church here so that they can help you. But let me encourage you, if you said a big yes or a little yes or a healthy maybe, please let us help you along those next steps. God bless, it's been great to be with you and uh, take care. God bless, thank you.